welcome to TrickCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. I'm David Cumberbatch, and I'm joined virtually by the man from Las Vegas, Nevada, by way of Atlantic City, New Jersey, my co-host, Michael Gordon Bennett. Atlantic City, New Jersey. That is my hometown, but I didn't live there very long. My father joined the Air Force when I was two months old, and I've been back several times. I kind of missed the old Atlantic City days, but uh, um, I didn't live there very long. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like home, but not home, I guess, for lack of a better word. As a military brat, you get to travel and see the world. So uh, I didn't get to stay very long. Um, As regards to today's show, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We have a great travel writer with us who has explored the world, and you will find out how dynamic she is shortly. But Dave, um, at the time of this recording, which is August 17th, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, it was 130 degrees. Death Valley yesterday. (laughs) That is exactly 150 miles from my front door. Now you're talking about uh, Atlantic City, not giving yourself enough credit (laughs) or not giving Atlantic City (laughs) enough credit. And you're really close to Death Valley. I don't know how Death Valley got the name Death Valley, but... Um, you live in 130 <laughs> degrees, you figure it out really quick. Um, I mean, it's an outdoor sauna. As regards to Atlantic City, I didn't mean to be smirched too much. You know, my entire family's from Atlantic City. Uh, they all moved uh, at some point throughout their lives away from the city. But I remember one year I went and stayed with my grandparents for a year when I was 12 years old. It was the best summer of my life. So I, I don't want to you know, say too much about Atlantic City that's negative. This was pre-casino, or as I say, uh, uh, BC, you know, we got, you know, the BC before casino era. Um, <laughs> and it was great because you'd get a bike. My grandfather worked on the boardwalk. He was the foreman for the entire boardwalk and he would uh, take me to work with him at 5 a.m. Wow. 12-year-old yeah, getting out of bed at 5 a.m. wasn't a lot of fun. But um, once I got the bike and I started riding up and down the boardwalk until my grandfather told me time to go home, it, it was great. I, I, I got more free food from all the vendors who knew him. Mm. Uh, I got the bike for free. I got rides on the steel pier for free because they all to my grandfather. So it was a great summer. So Atlantic City, I'm still with you, baby. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Atlantic City spoiled you. (laughs) It it, it did. did. I've lived near a beach pretty much my entire life. You know what's funny? I never planned to move to Las Vegas. I came here, obviously, for reasons that were personal because my mom got ill, but I never thought I would live in one city that was known for gaming, Las Vegas, and be from the other city that eventually got gaming and became the East Coast Mecca for the gambling world. So yeah. uh, I'm going back to California now that I've said all this. The only anyway. two things that are green there, that's money and cactus. <laughs> at, at, at 130, you can debate the cactus one. <laughs> anyway, before we jump into today's show. A couple little things I like to do at the beginning of every show. Uh, this is the TripCast 360 podcast and our, e- our website is also TripCast 360 and we are on all of the uh, podcasting platforms, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and pretty much every podcast outlet that you can think of. And if you forget any of that, you can simply go to our website TripCast360.com and you will find our podcast for every episode. Our social media handles are on Facebook, Instagram, 
on Twitter and YouTube. And we've just recently added a sign-up form. We're going to start producing a newsletter. You can find that on our website as well at tripcast360.com. Dave, tell us a little bit about how you found today's guest. Well, our guest today wrote a very interesting piece in Forbes entitled, Why Your Post-Quarantine Vacation Should Be an Alaska Fishing Trip. And it got me to thinking what a perfect way to combine travel and pandemic social distancing. Why wait if you can actually go to a place like Alaska? Can you can can you answer that question, Michael? Uh, well, this um, I've been to Alaska. Uh, there is a certain time of year that you need to get there before the weather sets in, unless you're uh, not uh, risk adverse. I'm glad uh, that we're going to get our guest on here right now. I'm actually going to introduce her. We'll get her in here and we can let her talk about Alaska. Her name is Catherine Parker Magyar. She's a New York-based writer covering travel, lifestyle, and culture. Her work has appeared in the Architectural Digest, Forbes, The Week, Business Insider, Trip Savvy, The Daily Beast, Elite Daily, and more. Her parents took her to the Arctic Circle when she was, get this, just 14 months old. Since then, she has traveled to six continents, 63 countries, and all 50 states. She has driven husky sleighs through Arctic forests and Finnish Lapland and sailed the Rio Negro to the heart of the Brazilian Amazon. As a matter of fact, she's just done so darn much. Catherine, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. Most certainly, Catherine. And I'll answer your question right off the bat. Why why did your parents take you to the artist circle at such a young age? Wow. You know... There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why I feel like I ended up as a travel writer, but I first and foremost really blame my parents. Um, that <laughs> travel is always something that they love to do. And nowadays I feel like the trend is like helicopter parenting and like, you know, how like everything you're doing in your own personal life could affect your potential children and your children. And I think that there's like a counterbalance to that, which is like, show your kids what you love to do and continue living your life. And that's its own inspiration. And I guess my parents wanted to go to Alaska. You know, they had their first child, me, 13, 14 months old. And they're like, she'll be fine. You know, so it was like, it was a driving plane bus ride situation. Clearly, I don't remember it very well, but the stories are legendary. I was referred to as bear meat. Um, I knew how to say about seven words. One of them was the, were the words Antonise, who's from New Jersey. So we're talking about Atlantic City. And I guess on like a little plane, I was like shaking back and forth, like Aunt Denise, Aunt Denise. Like Aunt Denise would take me to the mall. Aunt Denise wouldn't like have me like stuck in this wilderness. But yeah, so I ended up going there and then I had not been back to Alaska until last spring. And so I'd technically been to all 50 states. Like my physical body was on that state. I threw a temper tantrum. I rode a bus for the first time and thought it was like an amusement park ride. So I would like scream whenever the bus stopped, like ride, ride. And like <laughs> my, I was trained to say, remember the moose. So it's like, it's family lore, which is what traveling with your family becomes. Like no matter how miserable it can be at the moment, I know you guys are talking about Death Valley. On a road trip with my family, our air conditioning broke down in the middle of Death Valley. Literally, like people were selling eggs on the side of the street because you could fry an egg. There were six of us in the car. And I just remember being like, I'm, I'm, we're going to die in this minivan out here. But, you know, we love to tell the tale. But last spring, I went on an Alaskan fishing trip at Waterfall Resort, Alaska. So it's in this, it's so it's in the panhandle. So it's more towards the south. Um, it's if you like Alaska, that part of Alaska, it's like sort of like British Columbia-esque. Yeah. You see a ton of evergreen islands. And just to give like some 
for people to give you some sort of visual picture, like Maine, the Evergreen Islands off Maine. Okay. Times a hundred, like so lush and nothing like, and the great thing about an Alaskan fishing trip, you know, aside from the fact it's automatically socially distanced is that you go there in the summertime and that there's the midnight sun. So the sun is just blazing in the sky and it sets. And what I really loved about the trip is, I mean, for me, I feel like travel, there's a huge wellness movement, which even though I appreciate Gwyneth Paltrow is like a celebrity icon to human, like I, I'm here for the conscious uncoupling. I'm here for the fact that she can recite every rap lyric from the 90s. But I find <laughs> wellness to be so self, so navel gazing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go on vacation yeah. just to be like sitting in a circle thinking about myself. Like, I think that true wellness is getting outside of yourself, which you can find in various ways, meeting people. But in Alaska, I found like the fishing trip to be super meditative because I was with a good friend of mine, Josh Laskin. He writes for like Outside Magazine and he's a major fisherman. And obviously there are these people who, you know, go up year after year and our guide who, you know, biggest character, I think in general, whenever you're with a wildlife guide, you know, ask them personal questions. Like they're the real entertainment and the real guides of the place. Like, but I'm not a great fisher person and pretty much it was deep sea fishing. So, you know, you're like dropping the line and the animals though, that you would, that would come up from the bottom of the sea would be like neon. Like we were hunting for king salmon, which I had one on the line. I pretty much was giving them Thanksgiving dinner. They would get on the line and then they'd eat it. But like you're out there in this tiny boat in the middle of nowhere and you hear like, I mean, to be honest, you know, it's vacation, it's relaxing. I took some naps in my, you know, full on yellow waders. Like I prefer, you know, my naps to be 30 miles offshore. And then you wake up to like a whale exhaling and you look out and it's just so pristine and beautiful. You see bald eagles everywhere. And it's like, this is, this is America at its best. Like America's America's greatness is its diversity and landscape and people. And like, if, if you know, you want to feel like you're like, I don't know, because Sarah's quote, the infamous, notorious, horrible Sarah Palin, you felt she could see Russia from her backyard. Like, I could have felt like I was anywhere. You know? and, and I feel like people always, when they want to go to outdoorsy places and they're like, I'm going to do these outdoorsy things. Like, I'm calling in from Jackson, Wyoming. Um, and, you know, I, I would lie to you if I said last night I wasn't watching Selling Sunset on Netflix. You know what I mean? And even, even if you're in the most beautiful place, it's hard to force yourself to go out and do the thing. If you're not on like a fishing retreat where like we were up at 5am back at 5pm, if you're on a track, if you're, I don't know if you're on safari, like I think there's so much value to those kind of immersive travel experiences. And yeah, Alaska, no, but no better time to go in my opinion. It's funny because I'm probably one of the few people who also lived in Maine. I spent four years of my childhood in Maine. Really? In northern Maine. There is an old Air Force base called Loring Air Force Base. If you get a, if you drive up Interstate 95, it dead ends in a town called Holton. Then you, uh-huh. get, then you get on US-1 and drive another 150 miles. Uh, I can throw a snowball from my bedroom window and hit uh, hit Canada. Uh, we, we were so far north, we were actually... It's either Montreal, Quebec. I forget which one's northern most of the two, but we were north of there. Um, it was uh, it, it was beautiful. 
you know, when you come back and live in a big city like I do, you don't understand noise pollution until you go to a place that's that quiet. Yes. You you know, it it was one of those places where the wintertime, because we're 46 degrees north latitude, you know, the sun would set at three in the afternoon. You know, you walk to school at seven o'clock in the morning. It's still dark outside. Uh, Temperatures would dip. You know, well below zero in the winter. My birthday's in January and I missed school four years in a row because it was sub zero. Uh, But I remember just the summertime and just being able to just go like land the grass and you can hear nothing. You see the animals walking around you. They don't bother you. It was just peaceful. I never experienced that again until five years ago when I went to Alaska. Where are we near Jackman in Maine? Because I've been up to the Canadian border in, it's called the Moose River region. I know where the Moose River region is. Okay. Uh, as uh, when I was in the Boy Scouts, we went there for a, a, a camping trip that we wound cool. up spending like a week in the woods. And it was my first, ex- I was eight. It was my first exposure to canoeing. Even now, all these years later, I have such fond memories of that time in Northern Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can't go back there anymore because Loring Air Force Base has been closed for two decades. Our houses are all gone and everything like that. As a matter of fact, uh, our the current U.S. senator from uh, Maine, Susan Collins, she's from a town called Caribou. Caribou, Caribou was the, the closest big, big town. Yeah, <laughs> Caribou was the closest big town to, and I say big with population 2,500, the closest big town to where we were in, and Susan Collins and I are the same age. It's a possibility I could have run into her somewhere down the road. Yeah. That's amazing. But uh, when I went, you went to Alaska at what time of year? So I was in Alaska in June. Okay. I went, <laughs> you're going to laugh, I went in late September. And the cruise ship industry doesn't sail to Alaska after the 1st of October because of the weather. Well, it was great. We did the whole thing with the on the cruise ship and spent time in Ketchikan and Segway, Juno, and some of the other places. I went to the Mindanao Glacier, but I went whale watching. But on the way back, you know, you take the inner passage going up. So there's always an island blocking you from the Pacific Ocean to your west. On the way back, you're out in open water. We got hit with a storm that had that boat listing so bad that I actually tried to talk my girlfriend into at least getting because we had an inside cabin with no view because she doesn't like to look at the water. I said it would be better to to suffer through this if we go out, you know, up where we can see. Yeah, she wasn't having it. Uh, she she said, "Oh no, I, I heard, don't blame I, her, man." I heard you have to look at the horizon. That's yeah, exactly. The only That's way the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. With right, and it was two o'clock in the morning. I can hear people out in the hallway getting sick. I can hear mm. uh, glasses and dishes and stuff crashing in the kitchen, which was like you know right down the hall from my room. I mean, I, you can hear people crying. They were so afraid. And the captain got on and didn't say one word. Never said a word. I guess he this was This is used like to that. when you need a captain, a captain to step up. Like, it's like the Titanic. <laughs> Someone's got to be like handing out champagne, playing the violin, you yeah. know, like. <laughs> but, I, but going back to your story about the uh, whales, we, were, we went out and watched the uh, humpback whales and we saw, a, a, I guess they call them a pod or a school of them. And they were swimming about yeah, maybe a mile from the boat. We kept our distance respectfully. Then all of a sudden, maybe within a half a mile of our boat, this huge fin comes up and just slams the water. Mm. I oh got the most awesome shot I have ever had in my life. I still oh. love that shot. 
<laughs> there's something about whales that are just so majestic. And I feel like there's a spiritual element to travel, which is why, I mean, I relate to you saying, I remember that trip when I was eight, because I feel like there's moments that happen like in childhood, but then even now where you're almost just like blown away by like the planets and the earth and the fact that, I mean, we had two whales come up right to our boat when I was in Maui. And when I was 14 or 13, and I was obsessed with whales before then, and my mom was like, oh, they visited you. But it's funny, I went back to Maui to, well, I went, I've been, I went to every island, I've been to every island, but Malachi, but I was there last fall. And we were talking about like the sort of the spirituality that exists, where it's like, I feel like I would have a more spiritual perspective if I was seeing whales every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just connects you to something. Mm -hmm. And like that trip to Alaska, yeah, like when I was nine or 10, we were on a cross country trip with my family and we were in Glacier National Park, I believe. And it was June, which it's sort of like Alaska, like it was freezing, you know, even though it's summertime does not mean it's always going to be warm. We stumbled, we came upon this glacier lake and my mom had her bathing suit on underneath her fleece and like, just, you know, just immediately jumps in and she's like, Kate, are you coming? And I was like, I'm, I'm cold. She's like, you don't want to be the girl who doesn't get in the water, which I always think about really? now. Like, you got to do it. So I jump in the water, relying on our backs, we're floating. She's so blessed out. And then a hawk flies above us and it's like flying towards the mountain peak. And then she just goes, you know, it's moments like this when you can believe that a God could exist. Yeah. And it's true. And I understood like at that age, exactly how she was feeling. And I, and I, you know, that those moments can still be found. And I feel like that's one of the great, greatest things about travel. You know, we're talking about wellness. I feel like that does more for your mental health than I don't know, a hundred years of yoga and green juices. So. <laughs> no, I, I totally understand that. That, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I don't necessarily always want to go and stay at the five-star resort. As a matter of fact, I disdain them. Um, I've been through enough of them now that they're all the same to me. You know, a pretty beach in Hawaii is just like a pretty beach anyplace else with the nice resort on the water and they nickel and dime you dip. I'm a culture person. I want to get to know the people. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the, there was a fish, you referred to a fish market in your story. I forgot the name of it, but I've eaten at the same place. Um, yes. Alaskan fish house. That's it. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, good. That was good. Oh, good. And I also saw, I didn't know King Salmon, your story said they got up to 126 pounds. I didn't know they got yes. that big. Oh yeah. They got huge, oh. huge. Well, that explains I mean, it's what... like the old man in the sea with Hemingway and the Marlin, except for I never <laughs> caught, I never got anything on the line. <laughs> You've got some great analogies. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, 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 that explains why that bear that I saw eat tearing London pieces was so happy. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. Question for you, Catherine. You, I, I really enjoyed your article, and your article was pretty much about the post-pandemic uh, period. But how does, in everything that you've read or in terms of your research, they're saying that COVID, they, they, they're actually expecting COVID to come back during the colder months. Mm -hmm. How how does Alaska fear? being so cold at that time of the year in terms of COVID? Right, so I'm not, I don't know. I feel like so many of the COVID, I, I think it's like commonly held and commonly understood that COVID will be worse in the wintertime. But yeah. so many previously held assumptions, even though I do believe it will be worse. But I remember there's a period where we thought it couldn't thrive in like hotter temperatures. And like, I'm not sure. I mean, 
right now, I know that for the summertime, like the waterfall resort is open. They're going to have guests, but the places that you can visit in the last, in the wintertime are much more limited. And they're also not more limited, but they're different parts of the country. Like my dream, there's this place called Sheldon Chalet, which is in the middle of Denali National Park. And it's because it's like owned by like a family that's descended from bush pilots. It's the best place in the world to see the Northern Lights, which I think are a mess. I've never seen them. I've chased them. I went to Finland directly to see them, never have. But I know that they have, I know that they like have like just a certain number of guests. So I feel like the way that they're going to be able to maintain it is going to be like how I'm like different tourism bureaus that I work with who represent like the Arctic and ski resorts. It's really about, I think going to be temperature checks and also distancing and it's going to be more, but it's going to be more difficult indoors. You know what I mean? Like what's nice with doing these outdoors adventures is that there's sort of a more infinite space, but I know a lot of hotels and restaurants, you know, they're going to be at 30%, 40%. And it's hard because writing for an American audience, I mean, in general, I trust my audience, but it's always a little nerve wracking when you're encouraging a trip because there are certain precautions that you should take as a conscientious human being that we're seeing around the country that people just, you know, they don't want to wear masks. They find taking the temperature, taking the COVID test to be invasive. And it's like, these are the bare minimum things you can do. So I think that what's going to happen and like my reporting in the wintertime truly things change like week by week, month by month. So I'm really hopeful we'll get a vaccine in the early, in early next year. But if we don't, I think there's probably going to be a new normal for a little while where what I think hotels should do and tourism bureaus should do is have temperature checks because I know that you can not have a temperature and still have COVID, but it's much, it's much smaller. It's a much smaller likelihood. And you're also less likely to spread it if you don't have any symptoms like coughing, et cetera. So like for me, like when I am on fly fishing trip. I sound like a crazy fishing person, but they had temperature checks and all the staff got checked twice a week. And I feel, excuse me, twice a day. And I feel safer in those environments than I do like in a gas station. You know what I mean? Or like a restaurant where people aren't wearing masks, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I I feel kind of bad for the people in Alaska because you know, they've got oil and all that other stuff that allows them to sustain themselves through harsh times. But, it, you know, being that isolated, they've got one big hospital in Anchorage, if memory serves me correct. I know they have the one in Juneau, which is not a massive hospital. So if those people get sick. There's going to be a run on the hospital like you've never seen. There's just not yeah. a lot of places for them to go. Uh, and, and it's sad because that southeastern corner that you were referring to in your story, which is where I went and where you went to the fishing village, they're totally dependent on tourism. And there's so many places in the world that are completely dependent, relying on the GDP. And I think people can really dismiss travel as like a 1% luxury. But in actuality, like it's like essential, like not just obviously for parts of America, but around the world. And like it is, I don't know, to quote Mark Twain, travel, it's like travel is fatal for hatred, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. You know, and I really do believe like travel is love. And like, it's really hard to like other, to have this other perspective of someone else to demonize other people. And I don't know, I think it should be like required for all, I don't know, particularly now in the age of Trump, like white Americans to go somewhere and they be the minority. Do you know what I mean? And like, just like get out of your own comfort zone for seconds. Well, really I, important. I, I think you hit on something, though, and, and, and it just occurred to me, maybe 
maybe I'm spoiled because I've been traveling since I was a baby, but I find that the people who are, I don't want to say less bigoted and less racist, but the people who are more open-minded have, have seen other parts of the world. That's right. Mm-hmm. And when I see Americans, you know, I've said this on, uh, on several other podcasts, I think the last statistic I saw that less than 15% of Americans even have a passport. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've never seen any other part of the world, and you watch American media 24-7, you have a tendency to think that we are the centerpiece of the entire universe, and we're not. Right? No. And it's funny because the people, it is this can be a self-selecting group who travel, and particularly, like, it was very different traveling under President Obama and traveling under, under Donald Trump. And, I mean, even, like, if you look at places like... I mean, I'll be in Nepal and they'll be like, I don't understand how you guys have Trump as president. Everyone I meet, you know, hates him. And I'm like, well, everyone you meet has a passport. But also like, and this is for like the people who think America is great now, which is like, if you go to the Caribbean and you go to Central America, like it used to be six, seven years ago, I've always wanted to go to New York. And now, like, I don't know, I think even Belize was on the list of Donald Trump's shit countries. You know, it's not, it's yeah. not America's, America's no longer viewed as this, like, utopia for yeah. all people to come and succeed, which at its best, I think America is striving to be that. I think that, like, our founding fathers, what they wrote, like, even though they themselves didn't practice it, like, I don't know, the best, this article I read in the New York Times the 1619 project, it was like America wasn't a democracy until black Americans made it one. And then they went to the civil rights movement. But then you can even go on beyond like America's trying to arc forward and mm-hmm. that draws people in. And that's how we're going to continue to be, you know, a superpower. But the second that you've got the smartest person in, I don't know, I, I was on this first class flight from Amsterdam to Dubai and my, and my seatmate was this man from Qatar. And he was telling this amazing story about how he made friends with this guy in upstate New York who let him in across the border. They became friends. And now he's a billionaire and he employs his son. Like, you know, you want to be a place wow. that's a magnet. <laughs> and I, I just feel like, yeah, but there's ways to travel. Also travel, obviously there are ways to do it inexpensively, but there's also ways to travel locally, like in your head, like say hello, like in a cab driver, like maybe if you're in a really rural place, but have a conversation, like say yes. Like to quote Bill Murray, like I always try to be available for life to happen to me. Like you could travel stuck at home, like read, you know what I mean? Like there are places that there are places I want to see and like people I want to meet and just, just from reading books and listening, watching movies and, you know, just try to expand your palette and just, I don't know, for me, I feel like the best antidote to the 24 hours news cycle now that I can't like physically travel is to like, you know, read those stories. And like, I wrote a, I wrote a piece called like 50 books for 50 States, like a literary road trip across the U S. And then I did a book for each state and I wrote, wrote about books you can read, but yeah, I was an English major. I keep going on about books, but there are ways to do it. You just gave me an idea. Uh, We're going to have you back on a future episode. I want to talk about those 50 books and 50 things. I think it's a really good idea. I just wrote that on my notes. Oh my God. I would love to talk about it. I got so much reader engagement from it, which is great because like, you know, some people weren't, you know, I did To Kill a Mockingbird for Alabama. I should have done Big Fish, I think, but you know, some people love the selections, but I ended up fight, you know, I love anytime a reader emails me, I always respond. I'm always thrilled. I'm like, they went to my about me. They went, people love it. You know what I mean? I've gotten into it. Like, where does the color purple really take place? But like, it was cool. I love that story. And my brother's girlfriend, I was just doing, oh, I'll do a literary road trip across the U.S. Because I was like, there's certain books that like, Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh my God. It's in, it's in Oklahoma, Oklahoma. 
where it's like the richest, you know, the richest people per capita in the 20s were Native American. It was like the Osage Indians and then that story. And then my sister, my brother's girlfriend goes, why don't you do a book for each state? And I was like, you're right. And then like two weeks later, I was like, Jesus, like, okay, thank you for encouraging me to do this. But like now it took me forever. <laughs> you and I have to talk some more on here, but go ahead, Dave. I read where you said that you love to travel because you love meeting new people and experiencing different cultures. Where did you get that appetite? I think, I think it started, I think that my initial love of it started when I was like young and we did cross country trips across the U.S. And I saw, I don't know, but that gave me a sense for how big it was. Honestly, when, when I was young, we had, we had au pairs, which would be from different countries. So my favorite one was like Corinne from Guadalupe. You'd have someone from Poland in there. You'd have someone from Italy and every year you'd, you'd meet a different person. And that turned me on to it. And then also like my parents, both sides of my parents' family are very different. Like my dad's the first in his family to go to college and like, um, you know, like immigrants on both sides from Romania and my mom's family were like Mayflower and like their customs. And I don't, I just love people. I don't know when I just, I, it's just been a continuing thing where like, I've just been so, I, I find that if you are, I find that if you're curious, kind and vulnerable, curious, kind, vulnerable, people cannot help but react to you. I mean, and how do you do that in practice? Like ask a lot of questions. People love to talk about themselves. Don't also, don't ask questions like what's your favorite restaurant? Like I've had some of the most serious conversations and intense conversations with people that like, I don't know, my, my cab driver who was from Ethiopia in Finland, who was driving me from the airport to the hotel, like, do you know what I mean? Or like just ends up telling me this, which is actually a really depressing story, but you know, we're talking about like some like unrest in like Ethiopia and Somalia and then telling me a story about his, he watched his parents get killed, but then he was able to move wow. to Europe and you know, and I'm still in touch with him. Social media is great because you can stay in touch, but talk about like your breakup, make fun of yourself. That's what I mean when I say vulnerable. I've been with some journalists who are in trips and it's like, they'll come in and be like, well, I've, I've been to Kenya 10 times before and my readership, nobody cares. Like nobody this person's super super sophisticated i want to be their friend no like if you're somewhere and you think it's cool tell people also like i've been places where you know in dominica marvin felbert amazing amazing guy who took me on the craziest hike in the caribbean he's never left dominica but he knows everything about it so so, even me reacting to how beautiful dominica was which was a mix of like new zealand yellowstone it's flattering. People are curious. And then just like, don't be rude. People are so rude sometimes. Like, oh, like this meal is late or my flight's delayed or I don't want to go through security. Get over it. You're traveling. Things are going to go wrong. Your air conditioning right. will break down in Death Valley. Valley. Yeah, I just, and I've just always been curious about other, really curious about other people. Like, I just remember... When I was young, I remember like I used to, I watched, I read the, I watched the movie Gone with the Wind. And I was like, oh, Scarlett O'Hara, she's such a complicated protagonist. Then we went down, we did a road trip to Mississippi. And in two days I watched like, I watched Mississippi burning and then I went to the Civil Rights Museum. And then I was like, holy shit, excuse me. But you know what I mean? Like this is, and then I was, and then just Native American culture, like growing up, like we go to all the different, and it's just like, I want to know what it's like. I'm so curious about other people. And at the end of the day, like, I feel like there, but for the grace of God, go I like towards like when people are so mean about homeless people, I'm like, how hard is it? It's not hard for me to feel. It's, I, I find that it just connect. It's just, I just find that like people are so similar fundamentally. And like this idea that like snobbiness, pretension, condescension, like that is like a big, and maybe some of that comes from fear. You know, I'm so sick yeah. of like hillbilly elegy, like, 
the poor rural creature who's voting for Trump. No, like, and I, yeah, and I find like I've been in situations where I've relied on the kindness of strangers. I had a homeless person return my wallet in New York City. In Jamaica, I was stranded without a passport. You know what I mean? And like I had this yeah. nice border, in border agency let me home. In Palestine, I was caught with a weapon on the Palestinian-Jordanian border. And like that, I was able to keep it because it was like engraved with my, at the time, boyfriend's name. But they let me go. I just had so many moments of like profound kindness that I just... I just feel like if you treat someone like they're going to be good to you and obviously things don't always work out this way. You things can be unsafe, but if you treat like someone's going to, if you act like someone's going to rob you, they're going to like, I've traveled people who are nervous and they're like, and we were in, we were in Jamaica. I feel like I'm talking about Jamaica a lot. And she's like, is he doing a drug deal really loudly? And I'm like, maybe, you know what I mean? Like that's a huge source of the economy. Like why are you going to shame him for doing that? Like I'm going to get shaken in this spot. Just we trust. I found that if you trust people, they will trust you back. And like, then they're also emotionally invested in you. Like on these trips I've gone in as a travel writer, it'd be really easy sometimes just to be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to meet this person for a drink and then I'm going to go to dinner and then I'm going to relax in my hotel room. But like, if you get to know people, they will take you out. Like, and even like I was in, um, I was in Turks and Caicos on a bad trap party. We became friends with our bartender there. She took us to Versace, Versace, this locals only club. I'm still in touch with her. Like, like her mother currently has my passport in Queens right now. Like, do you know what I mean? You just, people are the place. And if you go somewhere and all you can talk about is like the fancy hotel bathroom and the landscape, <laughs> then like you've missed the whole point and I wouldn't even travel. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's not called traveling then. And uh, yeah. uh, moral of the story, do not travel as the ugly American, okay? Yeah. And I don't mean yeah. physically ugly. I mean mentally ugly. Uh, just relax. Have a good time and enjoy the culture of these countries. It, it was funny. Your story reminded me of what happened to me in Fiji. I'm sitting on the beach, um, minding my own business at a brand new hotel. And I have all these books with me. You know, I, I guess I wanted to look studious, you know, and I'm, I'm by myself and I and I'm sitting there and this little three year old girl comes up to me and she starts playing with me. And her mother, of course, all panicked because there's this big six foot four inch black guy sitting on the beach in Fiji. She yanks her daughter away. But the husband was there and the girl kept coming back. Finally, the husband comes up, he gets over and he sits down next to me and asks me where I'm from. I told him that, you know, I'm from the United States and we had a long, long story short, the family had never seen an African-American. Mm-hmm. Ever. They had never had contact with when I was the first. And so I spent he was a farmer in Australia. That's what he did for a living. And eventually his wife warmed up to me. The little girl would still not leave me alone. I sat next to that girl for a week. And every time she saw me at the pool, hey, Mr. Mike, and she'd run over to me and sit down. Long story short, I feel like sometimes we have to be cultural ambassadors as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can go yeah. out and and show people a different side of of the place where you come from other than what you ne- see in the media. Had I not been receptive to that or I had I put up the stone walls like most Americans do when they run across something they're not familiar mm-hmm. with, that family would have never approached me. And I would like to think 10, 15 years later now that I've actually influenced their lives in some way. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And like, that's the thing too, is being open and being, I don't know, being, yeah, being willing to that. One thing I've seen sometimes traveling or people are so nervous to engage that they don't engage at all. Or like, you know, they're so, they feel like if there's a history, if there's a complicated history, if there's a history of slavery, colonialism, or anywhere you go in the world, there is a painful past and they won't engage with it because, and it's like, I don't know, I guess Derek, I know, 
David, your fan, um, Barbados, but Barbados, yeah. quoting my friend Derek Morgan, I'm just have to send this to him, but he was telling me both of his, I think his great grandmothers were, were raped by their masters. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Cause we were, and he was like, don't be sorry. He's like, it's worse. It's like people get so uncomfortable and I feel like they don't engage with the history as much, but like the worst thing you can do is not ask questions and not, you know, just by just not people who I understand people who are like nervous, but at the same time, the flip side of being an ugly American is if you're just like going to take pictures of people on your long lens zoom camera and not buy anything, not try to learn the language at all and post to your Instagram feed, you know, the one barefoot kid you saw in all of Kenya, which has a bigger middle class than the U S yeah. you know, there's this, element of that but what you said about um your story just now remind me i when i went to the middle east for the first time i went to jordan my sister is like a fulbright scholar living in amman i went to palestine jordan israel and i'm from new jersey and like right outside new york city and you know it was after 9 11 i feel like i blame bush but uh, i blame a lot but honestly like between, you know, it was Al-Qaeda, then it was Afghanistan, then it was Iraq. I feel like the whole region was demonized in a way that I worry we see Asian Asians being demonized now as well because of coronavirus. And so obviously I didn't feel that I had any of those negative perceptions because I rationally as an objective as a human did not, but going there for the first time. And my sister was like, I'm telling you, this is a culture of recognition. Like in New York city, you're so crowded. Although I think New Yorkers are very nice. I really do. But she's like, it's polite not to look someone in the eye and be like, Hey, where are you from? What's up? But in Jordan and Amman, people look at you. They, they talk to you. It's like, oh, you're from America. Welcome, welcome. The kindness and the hospitality, like Arabic hospitality and the warmth was just like, it blew me away. And the first couple of days when I would hear the call to prayer, I would get nervous. You know, it would make me nervous. And I'd be like, why am I, why is this making me nervous? And I realized it's because of homeland and because of the news. Whenever you'd hear the call to prayer, it would symbolize a terrorist attack. And then by the end of the trip, whenever I heard the call to prayer, it was like peaceful. You know, and you don't even realize that you have these subconscious associations until you're confronted with them. And honestly, when I got back and that was, I'm so happy I'm a travel writer now that I can just, you know, get paid to just like be like, this is a huge deal. Listen to this. Like, let me share this with you. But when I got back, I remember we went to a refugee camp and it was for, um, it was for Palestinian refugees. And I, and it, the kids were just amazing. I mean, and it just broke my heart because I was like, it cost a thousand dollars probably for all of them to have winter coats. And what am I doing living in New York? And yeah. I got involved with this like this charity with like Syrian refugees, the Amal Foundation, which is really great. But when you see something, it changes you. I saw the separation while in Palestine and I cried. And my sister was like, I guess I see this so often that, you know, it doesn't even have the impact, even though she's dedicating her whole life to, you know. But yeah, their travel is important because you can see things and you don't feel the same way again. It's like the civil, the civil rights museum or like when I was in, I don't know, we spent like a long time. I forget what the name of the reservation was in South Dakota. And I was like, this is, I can't unsee this, you know, and it's changes you. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really does. Uh, I'm going to make a quick pivot here because we were talking yeah. about, um, you know, a little bit of uh, nature and spirituality and kind of getting out and kind of centering yourself in nature. What are some of the places you've been? I know you've been to the Masamari region of Africa. And yeah. uh, it's another one of those places where it's like unspoiled nature. You can kind of get away from people and kind of just, you know, uh, absorb nature. Kind of tell us a little bit about that journey because uh, I, I think it's fascinating because a lot of people don't even know who the Masamari are. Oh my God, that was the best. I mean, if you're, that was my favorite trip of all time. And I think part of it is like, I truly believe that if you've always wanted to go somewhere in your heart, it doesn't disappoint you. It's like your soul is telling you. And I'd always wanted to go to Kenya. 
always, always wanted to go to Masai Mara. And I was on the first direct flight from New York City to Nairobi. So all these journalists on the plane and Kenya Airways is amazing. I, oh my God, I forgot her name. He from Kenya Airlines taught me some Swahili on the way over. So I was like able to like kick it a little bit when I got there. But then we went from Nairobi, which I think is important because a lot of people just fly in and then they go right to the bush. But like Nairobi is awesome. And like you can go to like the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust and stay at the Norfolk, which is this amazing old hotel. We went from the Nairobi to Mount Kenya, which is... Um, I mean, I can't. It's so beautiful. It's outrageously beautiful. Kenya, the name Kenya originates from like various different, there are like various different origin stories of it, but comes also from Mount Kenya. And Mount Kenya is known as like God's resting place. Like when he wasn't in heaven, he was vacationing there, which a hundred percent checks out to me. I would too. Like, but like, so you go from this green lushness and then we took a safari link out to the Masai Mara. And there's just no words. It looks like heaven. The, the air, the sky is different in Kenya. It's huge. But like the clouds are different. So it was like there were spotlights of sunlight beaming across the sky. But you're looking across this flat landscape with those beautiful trees that I can't remember the names of. I'm really bad. I, that's where I spend half my research Googling. A tree that looks like this. Because I just do not have that scale. But you see beams of light. And then you're in these and, you know... Places in Kenya and places for Africa, they've done such a, fa- a fabulous job preserving their natural heritage. And like one thing that I would sometimes hear in the U.S., which is just racist and untrue, it's like, oh, well, they, you know, they don't even care about their animals. That's not true. Like I met people whose entire lives are saving these mountain bongos. I met this man whose entire life was like tracking rhinos, you know, and an elephant will walk by. And then I saw like an elephant and then a tree beyond there was like an antelope a war like all these little animals chilling and it's like they're having a dinner party and we're random in the safari deep you know what i mean like we're just another animal and what's cool about the Maasai Mara is that the Maasai, the, the Maasai people who've been living in Kenya on this land for, I mean, history, for eons, forever, um, working with Kenya tourism, you know, like you can go like to these, I mean, the most beautiful bead, like beaded jewelry. I wish I'd, I wish I'd taken out my entire bank account and just like purchased everything there. But just like you got to meet, like you got to like meet the people, like as part of like the tourism there too. But you also get to like, it's the most... I cried every morning. I can't even explain it very well. Like I'd never seen anything more beautiful in my life. Like just, I remember my mom and dad, they spent a quarter of their annual income to go to Kenya when they were dating in their, or just married in their twenties. And I was like, what was the best animal that you saw? And they were like, well, the zebra. And I was like, that's so, no way is it going to be zebra for me. But I was in Mount, I was in Mount Kenya and we were driving back. We went to a bush breakfast. The cocktails in Kenya are another reason just to go like sundowners, bush breakfast, like the lunches. And just suddenly this like group of zebra just came in front of us and they were like playing in the field. And I was just like weeping. And then Daniel, who was one of our guides was like, Katie, literally, these are like, these are the, these are the Kenyan donkeys. He was like, these are the donkeys of the bush. Like these are not majestic, but yeah. I mean, and what's crazy is it's not as expensive as people think. I thought I would have to either like get engaged and go on a honeymoon. Thank God I'm not married yet because any of those engagement honeymoon trips would have not ended well. But you know, I thought to spend $10,000. I was saving up with a friend and then her dad turned 60 and they went to Kenya and I was like, God damn it, I'm never going to go. And she was, I was like, how was it? And her dad changed. Her dad is a better person now. I swear to God. She was like, yeah, you know, my dad is like, you know, it's, it's life changing. And then I looked at how much it costs. 
And it's less expensive than a long weekend in like Finland. Like it's the flights are expensive. But when you get there, you don't need to be staying at the most expensive spot. Like a lot of these spots are really nice and great. It's safe. And it's really not as expensive as you would think. Right. Go. But the most expensive part that you just alluded to is the airfare. The rest of it's not that bad. But now, you know, post pandemic, I'm telling you, look into the airfare airfare deals and lock in a price. And I mean, just... Final word on the Saimar. When I landed, we met the deputy president and he was like, welcome home. And he gave a speech where he was like, it doesn't matter if you're from South America, if you're from Europe, if you're from Asia. When you come to Kenya, Kenya is the capital of mankind. You're coming home. And like, I just really, I, we're talking about spirituality and travel. Like I felt that, you know, and there are other places in the world that claim to have the first people, but oh my God. It's like Kenya is where we first became human. Maybe it's where we need to go back to feel human again. Oh, my God. And the tourism bureau is fabulous. Go. Yeah, yeah, Read my yeah. article on it. I wrote, I wrote why, you sh- why you should visit Kenya now or something for Britain, Co. I'll send you the link. Hey. But. <laughs> What's the biggest misconception about what you do? And the reason I answer that question, because I know when I travel on assignment, I'm literally busting my ass. I'm working really hard. I'm the, depending on what the 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 uh, assignment is, if it's, it's for if it's for daily, I mean it's literally hard work. And very often people will say to me, "Boy, I'd love to go on that trip. It must be exciting." What's the biggest misconception about what you do? I think that the biggest misconception is that there's not actually, as you mentioned, a work element involved. But here's where I also think I think a lot of people view it and it's like, "Oh, it's a nice vacation." Or, I mean, I don't want to hate on Instagram influencers, but I will. But there's also, because of influencing has gotten as part of travel media, which Instagram influencers are, are bought. They're paid to go. They're paid to say it's the best place, that there's this sort of lack of objectivity with journalism as well. Like, it's like, oh, well, you can't say anything bad or you can't write. It's like, right. well, you know, no, like as a journalist, like I'm not going to tell you to go somewhere unless like I actually really think that it's the best spot. But also like you have, you can have a natural personality, I think, for travel writing. You can travel like a travel writer without being one. And the way that you do that is you really, you're up at 8am, you're seeing everything, you're trying to consume everything in a short period of time, but also meeting people. And I think that for me, what's helped me stand out is that I've made friends every trip I've gone on and I've kept in touch. So I just did a story with Danny Donnellan from Grenada, who is like this tradition of Caribbean boat building and almost vanished 20 years ago because it's very labor intensive. And, you know, there was it, it, there was this documented vanishing sale, but then now, you know, you can get a Caribbean schooner. It's they retail so for so much in St. Bart's, but the, if I wasn't still in touch with him and friends with him, I'm able, like I interviewed him literally two months ago. I met him a year ago. I wouldn't be able to get the stories I have, like the interviews yeah. I've had. I just interviewed a truffle hunter, the first truffle hunter in Tuscany. I met him on a trip, you know, and this idea, like you have to ask people questions. You have to put your stuff out there. It gets exhausting. You know, I mentioned in Barbados, like I was so tired the first day I got there, but then it was like, no, like this is your job. You got to be in it. And another thing is like, it's research. It's a lot of work. Like even just if it's a smaller article, I'm always trying to figure out what's the most concise way I can say something. Because if you're reading a story and you have to reread the couple sentences, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And they're probably paraphrasing something else they've read. You know, like when I was in China on the Great Wall and I have a great wall time is amazing, but it's like, I was like, okay, so the same emperor who like built all of these like statues, he was also doing the great, like basic questions. Don't be afraid to look dumb, get in there. And 
also it's like you have to get people to trust you a lot of journalism for travel like if i was just writing about this is the nicest hotel if i was a hotel reviewer maybe it wouldn't matter but like it's yes it's a big deal to me like i want people to want to talk to me and like i guess just going back to kenya i really bonded with one of the rhino trackers and i don't know because i was like what are these two rhinos names one has passed away so sad but the last two northern my rhinos kofi Annan and queen elizabeth they're named but they didn't have crushes on each other so they wouldn't hook up how did you get into being a rhino tracker all this stuff and this one woman came up and I was just chattering with him and she goes, can I have him after you? And he was like, I'm not doing media. And it's like, can I have him after you? Like be a human being. Like all the, all the stories I get and all the conversations I have are never like, Oh, meet with this person for 20 minutes and you're going to get no, like they're always personal. They're always personal conversations. Like be curious. Don't, and don't be afraid of, I think the more you travel, the more I'm not worried about, I feel like I can ask, you can ask if you're coming from a genuine place and you know, I think in yourself, if you are, you can ask anything. There's nothing off topic, but if you're, if you're like looking down on something, you're, you know, then, then you can't, you know, it's like, that's the biggest misconception. I think is some people just think I'm constantly on vacation and it is, but like, I don't think like, like it's a lot. And I, as you said, being an ambassador, like I'm an ambassador, I feel like for like America, but also for like, you know, whoever's hosting me and I want them to like me. I need to, I need to make sure that like, you know, and I don't know, I was in New Zealand and we were going to climb this waterfall and I met with this guy and you know, we, he was like, well, I'm going to take you to this other place first. And then 20 minutes and he's like, I'm going to take you to the waterfall. And I was like, was that like an audition? And he's like, yeah, I wanted to make sure you were cool before I spent an entire day with you. And it's true. Like, you know, (laughs) so, and also like, yeah. And I have like loftier ambitions for right for travel writing than just, I'm going to like, for me, when I like feel good about a story, it's because like the people that I meet, like I want to tell their tale and I want someone to read my story. And like, you know, even if you don't book a flight immediately, it doesn't even matter. It's like, are you like, are you now going to know the history of Caribbean boat? Like, is this gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing this person right now. This he's a, he's the, um, a Sherpa and his name's Appa and he's summited Mount Everest more times than any other human. And he stopped because of the like crowded at the top and actually a lot of the stories right now interviewing this other person who oh my god i can just keep going forever but these people are these stories are amazing and i want you to feel something like if all i cared about was i don't know just like going to luxury hotels i'd i don't know you, you know what those the uh one of the reasons dave and i don't have a lot of industry guests on our show is because i don't want them to tell me about their luxury hotel i want yeah. them to tell me about their experience culture. experience yeah. experience yeah. Peter, peter greenberg used to drill that into my head when when i first started out in the travel business experience focus on the experience and yeah. you turn up these little gems of stories mm-hmm. when i was in jamaica I don't know. They, they call me a Jamaican now. I get the same cab driver. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I don't know if it was in Ocho Rios or Montego Bay. I, I don't remember which of the two places it was that I stayed. But there was a golf course that is built directly across the street from one of the two resorts I stayed at. And they took me over there for dinner one night. And I'm sitting there and they give, they give me this one little story about the evolution of the golf course. It's a PGA rated golf course. It's the only one in Jamaica. And they said when they first built the golf course they couldn't find any caddies 
no one in Jamaica had ever played this sport well enough to know how to caddy. So they go, they get in the car and drive that 165 miles to Kingston, pull some black kids off the street, bring them over to this golf course and teach them how to be caddies. And when they first started caddying, they were like the bad news bears. They would ride the golf cart in the middle of the golf course, play in the sand traps with, you know, doing wheelies on the golf course. They had no clue what a caddy really did. And by the time they got through, a couple of those kids were good enough that they qualified for the the feeder tour to the PGA. That's so cool. I mean, you would never see a story like that unless you got into the culture. Yeah. Right. And had a conversation and yeah. asked those sort of questions like, well, how did this all start? Or like, who works? Yeah. The most basic questions I find, too. Like, safari, like what does safari mean? It means journey. Like, you know, just base the most, you know, and open-ended questions, too. Yeah. 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 Just let them talk. You, you learn so much yeah. just by, you know, shutting your mouth and listening. They'll, they'll tell you pretty much anything you want to know to make a great story. I actually thought about turning that um, Jamaica story I just told you into a movie. Oh my God, you should. Yeah, that would I, be an awesome the, movie. The, film, the filmmaker side of me has come out on that one. I've, I've actually, I wrote a synopsis on it about 10 years ago and I haven't produced it yet. I sat on it. So I may go back and revisit that story. Oh my God. That would be so good because it would also, also people love Jamaican sports stories, but also yeah. though, like the underdog, oh my God. Yeah, I, And I also keep... it'd be filmed on a Jamaican golf course. Like, oh my oh, God. Oh yeah, it'd be great. Oh, and the, and the views, oh my gosh. You're oh. off the number one tee and all you've got this is beautiful view of the Caribbean. I mean, it was just, oh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you just mentioned New Zealand and I have to answer you a straight oh, I, know, I, I know what's coming. <laughs> I have to answer you a straightforward question. It's not going to be lengthy. What were you doing skywalking in New Zealand? Oh and my tell God. Me, and tell me, and tell and tell our audience what that experience was like. Oh my God. So my trip to New Zealand involved like a ton of jumping off buildings, which is like <laughs> insane. But when I was like in, I studied abroad in, no, I was like an exchange student in high school, a high school summer in Japan, which was so cool. But it was the beginning of my trip and my host family took me to this place. I don't remember what this, and I've written about it and I've had to be like, I don't even know what it was. I had to jump off a cliff bungee jumping. I was like 16 <laughs> and my host, they like didn't really speak English and I didn't really understand any Japanese, but there was like, when you bungee jump, you're not supposed to hold your neck really tight, I think, or I don't know. Cause I didn't know what they were saying. There was a way to jump that your neck could snap. So I was like, I was mining how to jump and they were mining back. And then it was like, uh, uh-uh. uh, I don't know. And it was, I remember almost jumping and being like, it was the scariest moment of my entire life. I was like, I'm jumping to my death. And then I was like, well, I'm 16. If I die bungee jumping in Japan, I don't think it gets much better. So that preamble is I was talking to New Zealand to people. I was when planning this New Zealand trip. Bungee jumping is famous in New Zealand. Everyone in New Zealand is a daredevil. It was actually like, invented there. It was invented. And yeah, like the AG Hackett, AJ Hackett, um, had that bungee jumping in Greenstown and they have um, the skywalk up in Napier, which is you are attached by wires to like a little wire and to like some overhang and you're walking around the top of the skyscraper, no railings and you could lean back. And I was just, I was hanging out. It was crazy. It looks terrifying. It was cool. I mean, I, yeah, I did a lot of sort of more adventure daredevil stuff because it was invented there in New Zealand. And also because I had never skydived, but like bungee jumping was my greatest fear, but it wasn't that scary. I recommend it actually a lot. I wish it was scarier because 
you know. How, how tall is that building? I don't know. God, I but don't know. Tall, I don't but it's really, it's really tall. tall. Yeah, I, I'm really looking. Tall. I'm looking at the picture right now, and you and your orange suit all b- uh, bundled yeah. up with your uh, harnesses on, and uh, you were on the tallest thing out there. So. Oh yeah. I wish I knew as it is. It is like I think it might be. I'm. I think it is one of the tallest built. It's definitely. Um. It's definitely one of the tallest buildings in in. Um, New Zealand. Let me see. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Dave. We got evil Knievel here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daredevil. It's I like the Auckland it. Sky Tower, and it's three hundred and twenty-eight meters high. Oh, wow. So yeah, I was saying Napier, but by the way, a second ago, talking about Auckland. I did a road trip in New Zealand. It was really cool. I mean, the story I'm writing is like pretty much like why your bucket list trip, like when you can travel again, like go to New Zealand, like literally so beautiful. Like talking about places that you feel so immersed in nature. Like I know we talked about Masai Mara, Alaska. I'd also say the Himalayas, South Island in New Zealand, the Arctic, Lapland in Finland. Um, oh my God, the Central Andes in Peru and the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Those are my, I'm sure I forgot one, but Mm-hmm. I like, I feel those are, those are the spots. Yeah. You, you had mentioned that you, um, uh, met Davey Sutton in, uh, and we're in the Amazon together. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Yes. Davey and I were in the Amazon together with the Amazon nature tours. And what's so spectacular about Amazon nature tours, it goes deeper into the heart of the Amazon up the Rio Negro, which FYI doesn't really have bugs cause it's black. Um, it's a black river and like whatever, mm-hmm. there's scientific reason than any other tour. And all of your guides are from the Amazon originally. Like Alex Tucano and Edavon were our two main guides. And both of them, like both our families from the, are from the Amazon. And Alex grew up until he was like, I don't, I think he was 12, 13. His whole life story is amazing. I wrote about it in my story, but he was telling us stories about how he survived Jaguar attacks. Like, you know, there are four Jaguars and he and his siblings are like, he and his parents were hiding under a canoe, but it was really fun with Davy in the Amazon. She's wonderful. I know she's been on this on here. I can't even imagine how great her stories were. But yeah. what's funny about the Amazon is I found during the day, the Amazon is like hot and it's like, it's cool, but it's sort of repetitive to be quite honest with you. It's like forest, water, forest, water. At night, the Amazon like comes alive. All the animals that were napping all day, siesta-ing, are like looking to hook up. That's their bar. Do you know what I mean? They're looking for mates. Mm-hmm. They're screaming. The rats are so loud. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. But because you're on the Rio Negro and the, and the water's black, the stars are so bright. They look, mm-hmm. they're so bright in the sky and they're reflected on the water. So you're going out in this little motorized canoe and it just feels like there's stars everywhere you look. And it's just like spectacular. Nice. It's amazing. You just mentioned that you were working on a story that included a bucket list. Is there a place on your bucket list that you personally would like to go that you've never been? Antarctica. I was supposed to go in November. Now I'm worried I'm never going to go again in my life. But 100% Antarctica, Russia, India. I was supposed to go to South Africa. Um, I was supposed to go to Georgia. Really like, but Russia, I'm like dying to do the steps. I'm dying to go to, to Siberia so badly. And it's crazy. Like, I don't know. I feel like there are certain, like I, whenever I look, whenever I plan where I'm traveling, I know there's some people who are like, and I do focus a lot on certain areas of the Caribbean, but they're like, it's almost a British perspective. I'm going to drill down and go everywhere in this one part of Central America. But what I found is that if you, the more places you go and the more wider array of people that you meet and like, it gives a better, as a journalist, I feel like I'm, I'm a better writer having sort of a, a, a sort of a knowledge of everywhere. So I literally look at blank spots on the map, but Russia, Antarctica, 
India. I really wanted to do more with, um, I was supposed to go to like Tanzania and I don't know. I feel like I've been, I was told before, cause I've been to Morocco and Tunisia, but they're like, once you go to Kenya, you're going to want to go to like Africa everywhere in back. And, and that's a hundred percent what I found true. Like I want to go to Uganda, Rwanda. Oh my God. I really, my sister was just in Senegal and I really want to go there. <laughs> I want to get involved with like some of the dancing and stuff, just everywhere. You know, there's nowhere, if I haven't been, I want to go 80 times more, but there's nowhere I would ever say no to, which is probably why I'm in a good job. But like yeah. not 50 states, but like if you, there's no, there's no country I'm not interested in. There are no people I'm not interested in. Hey man, I love that. I mean, yeah, you sound like me and Antarctica is also on my bucket list. I don't know why I'm just fascinated with Antarctica. You love Some, whales. It's the whale oh, connection. Well, that too. I did see a few orcas when I was in Alaska. So, but there's something about Antarctica when I see all these explorations on TV and the yeah. guys getting shipwrecked and ice squeezes in around them. And of course, my girlfriend yeah. liked the penguins. So, uh, I mean, there's just something about Antarctica that I want to see. As regards to the rest of the world, I'm like you. There's not a single place on this planet, mm-hmm. maybe short of the middle of Afghanistan, that I would not go to. Yes. <laughs> I, I just love it. It's funny because I know you're from Las Vegas and I went to say earlier, I went to Las Vegas for, I went to JBFS. Can you hear me? (laughs) I'm sorry. I literally zoned out for a second, guys. (laughs) Clearly can't keep talking for an hour before losing the thread. Um, I met Quincy Jones in Las Vegas. He was giving a speech at the JBL Fest and I went up to him afterwards. Coolest man alive. But like, I love my story. I wrote my story in Las Vegas and like, he was like talking, we were chatting about traveling and stuff. And he was like, you know what? You know what Sinatra taught me? He's like, you have to play as hard as you work, even harder. And he's like, if you love what you do, you'll be good at that. And like, I don't know. Yeah, I was getting like career advice from Quincy. I don't even know. We were just drinking, chilling, coolest i love las vegas i really do and the history the history there is so interesting like i love that like these people that america that america we were like you know what i'm gonna do this was cool seeing that fountain in rome i'm gonna go in the middle of the desert and i'm just gonna create like this just like wonderland you know i love a place with no judgments i love a place with no rules you know then you're perfect here (laughs) (laughs) because we have no rules we've had you on for quite a bit of time but there's a couple questions i know dave wanted to ask you uh one question about uh, you know, we touched on minority participation in travel and tourism, mm-hmm. especially as travel writers, uh, marketing and advertising and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Dave had a question he wanted to ask you about um, uh, an article you wrote about Cleo Anderson. Oh, yes. As we know, you know, there are not many black entrepreneurs in, in this space. So I'm sort of curious as to what prompted you to write that story. So. I, the story that I was working on prior where I got, you know, writing is almost if you build it, it will come. Like, I think I got to do all these adventures because I did this cool thing in Peru and wrote about it. And they're like, oh, do you want to go to Alaska or reverse, actually? But you know what I mean? Like, I am interested. I've always been interested in highlighting, like, I don't know, like locally owned, but also like I saw with the Black Lives Matter movement, this was something I was writing about prior, but I saw these things about how they're, you know, like highlight black writers or black travel publicists. And in my career, I'd worked with many. So that was just something that was like, well, why? Like, I already know these people for my travel writers and usually, but also just highlighting like there are people in the industry and like sort of, I know people are focusing on where their money goes and also like, what's what stories are they consuming like do they really need to hear like like 
there are certain perspectives and like, those, oh my God, I'm being so not articulate, but people want to broaden their perspective on voices they're consuming. And also when you get a success story like that, it's like with the Caribbean sailing with Danny Donnellan, which is another like black industry, but he was like, this almost died. We revived it. And with Cleo Anderson, she has like this luxury like travel PR agency that's based in London that she started herself and she's just and like she got in touch with me after I wrote about the travel writers and then I got contacted by a lot of different black owned businesses and travel and such and if I'm not writing about it I pass it on to my friends who cover just straight up business but I, I love interviewing women and I love interviewing women in travel and people who are sort of running their own businesses and people who've made it in travel who aren't like Instagramming themselves in a thong on the beach. <laughs> and so I, mean, <laughs> I think that Cleo's story would have been interesting at any time of any year, but it was great to publish it now. And the story that also people are interested in, like in consuming different, like I wrote 15 black travel writers to read now for Forbes, which I probably, I wouldn't have thought to have written that a year ago. Also because, you know, some things that are so obvious in my profession and the way that I'm occupying the travel space with the black lives matter movement was like a big wake up call that a lot of places just, you know, just the amount of, the amount of publications that weren't hiring or like promoting their black staff. And then the amount of editors that I was seeing who did, weren't even familiar and publicists who weren't even familiar with works written by black travel writers just showed me that like, this is something that should be spotlighted too. Yeah. What is the industry missing by not having more black writers or not many more uh, black, black publishers or PR officials? What's the industry missing? Well, aside from like missing, like, a huge like swath of shortage of like intelligence and like great writing because at the end of the day if you're only looking in the same pond all of the time and you're not really expanding beyond I don't know and here I would be part of the but like you know just like white freelance white freelance writers in the coastal areas then like that's number one like your capability for producing good work is minimized, but also like you need to spotlight different people's perspectives, particularly if it's going to be a black travel writer on a different location, they're going to come at it. Like there's someone who's someone who I think that overall, I think that in general people can connect more. I think that people can connect and empathize human to human, but I do think that your perspective and your upbringing and your experience in the world impacts how you're able to write and cover about other people's experiences in the world. And I mean, for me, like when I'm covering the Caribbean, like I feel like part of the reason or, or if I'm covering places in Africa or Asia or anyone, I want to tell the story through their lens in a way, through their perspective, like this is what I've learned. But you also get a huge richness when you're writing about, when you're writing about a place and your identity is like, as an African-American comes into it, like I'm thinking of, I'm going to send you this link, but a girl that I was traveling with in the Bahamas and it's, speaks to our world that I know her Instagram handle is Golden Lady J, but I forget what her full name is right now. She wrote a story on going to the Bahamas and her family's of Bahamian ancestry and what she felt that she understood more about the Bahamas after going. And my friend Neka Okona from Atlanta, she's an Atlanta-based writer on food. She comes, she wrote this amazing piece for Conan Ass Traveler about how Black Americans were so integral in the, found in the building of national parks. And like she, you just get like more nuanced perspectives on stories that have been told a thousand times, you know? 
do you really want to go? These are the 10 most luxury hotels or, you know, do you want to get like a real piece into it? And like NECA did a lot of stories on the Midwest too. Mm-hmm. A lot of places where there really aren't a lot of, Af- of a lot of black people in general and just writing about like this flourishing of like different food types and her, even if you're writing the third person, you're bringing your own personal experience into it. And mm-hmm. I think that that is why it's so important to have like, to be reading a variety of writers and not just like in terms of race, but in terms of like sexuality, orientation, age, like, I think that's all hugely important. Yeah. You know, I hope that helps. It, it does help that, you know, I, I've been at this a long time. Um, you know, and I, I still remember the days when there were hardly any African-Americans in the travel and tourism space going back into the 90s when I worked at the Travel Channel. But there seems to be a certain intransigence or maybe a certain reluctance on part of the industry collectively to embrace uh, people who are not part of the dominant culture, especially here in the United States. And I, I've got to tell you, from my perspective, it's frustrating because like after 9-11 hit, all of a sudden I was getting requests to come here, come there, you know, the fam trips right from the African-American perspective. And what I kept telling him is, is I'm capable of writing these stories and I'm capable of giving that little spin to it, if you will. But I'm capable of writing for all audiences. My audience yes. does not necessarily always have to be an African-American audience. And it was and 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 the same thing holds true. I won't tell you which country this is, but there was one country who hired an ad agency. And their PR firm, uh, they were combined into one agency. I don't, don't know why. It seems kind of bizarre. But anyway, they were combined into one firm. And they made the mistake of telling me their budget for marketing and advertising. And it was in the tens of millions of dollars. And I asked them, I said, how much of that money do you spend in the African-American community in the United States since your budget was X, Y, Z dollars? He said, oh, about one or two percent. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there. I mean, I, my blood pressure just went through the roof because we seem to have this problem with uh, just I'll give you a, a, another example. And Dave knows this. Uh, when President Obama signed the Travel Promotion Act in 2010, they formed this committee called Brand USA. And Brand USA's mission in life was to promote the United States as an international tourism destination. So a couple of days before Christmas in 2010, 2012, somewhere in there, I get this cryptic email from somebody at the Department of Commerce to say, you have been appointed to the Brand USA committee. No one asked. No one said a word to me. I had no clue what Brand USA was. I barely remembered Obama signing the Travel Promotion Act, which he did down in Orlando. And so I started calling around because I thought it was a joke. It wasn't <laughs> a joke. They actually put me on this committee for the Marketing and Advertising Committee for Brand USA. So a year later, we're all sitting in Washington, D.C. at the Mayflower Hotel, I believe. And there were 60 people in the room. I was the only person of color on that committee. That's insane. The only one. And I'm sitting here looking around. And and it was funny because I remember we were going around the room discussing marketing ideas and how to set this thing up because this was in its infancy. And um, none of it included incorporating people of color. And they were talking about, yeah, reaching out to New Orleans and reaching out to New York City and reaching out to L.A. and reaching out to Atlanta and getting all this set up. And I'm sitting there like, these guys don't know a thing about the African-American travel experience. And it just so happened that the uh, the, the Chinese president was here in, in uh, America and they were also uh, the Brazil Olympics was being planned at the same time. So I asked two questions. The first question was, I said, where is the largest concentration of, of Africans from Africa outside of the African continent? And we're talking about the Olympics. I mean, we literally just had a conversation about Brazil and not one person could guess. And the second thing I asked was, what is the largest sport in China uh, uh, and, and what team 
follows China. And the reason I brought that question up was, A, Vice President Biden was sitting in Staples Center with the president of China at the time. And Kobe Bryant, who's an icon in in China, Mm -hmm. was all over the media about having just none of them knew. It's like it went straight over their head. And so needless to say, a year later, I wasn't on the committee anymore. So (laughs) (laughs) frustrating. It was like, (laughs) I mean, also the fact that you were invited, but not even invited, just told, like, what if you didn't have time to do it? Yeah. Just uh, the entire, well, you know, what's interesting when you were talking about that in the New York Times travel section to Rio, it's the last name I would, to Rio, I met her. She's lovely. She's one of the travel editors. She wrote this piece and it's sort of an inside baseball, but if you're interested in travel, I really recommend it about Charleston tourism, how they have like a racist problem, a racism problem, or how in the wake of Black Lives Matter, they released their image, their um, symbol for like, you know, pandemic travel is a white glove holding a tray, which obviously has like so much that comes from like, you know, that imagery is associated with slavery. And it is so interesting because I interview different African-American owned businesses, like the business owners and about how they're working with like the tourism bureau. And that's huge. Like at the end of the day, like If you're going to be reflecting, I mean, when I first started writing travel, I think I mentioned like when we were off the record before, I was like, this is a utopia because I was meeting so many different types of people, et cetera. But also like I'm a freelance journalist. And so like the best trips I've been on, you know, I've not, it's rare. I've been lucky where it's rare that there's no, not at least one, like one or two black people on all my trips. And I have to say that my trips are pretty coveted. They're cool trips. So at the very top, I'm seeing that, you know what I mean? Like I'm looking at, and I, but I'm sure, you know, at the bottom, like I, I was on a trip in Mexico in an all-inclusive, yeah. And it was like 30 white women, you know? So I feel like there needs to be more of guardrails and also what you're like, Media doesn't need to be segmented between black media and white media. Also, people can't even tell usually unless you're like the New Yorker and you have your little cartoon. And sometimes like I guess in Forbes, if you click on the story, you'll get a headshot. But when you're scrolling through, nobody you can't you can usually sometimes you can tell people's ethnicities, but not always. And usually there's no picture of the author. So it's really like right. what's good. And also there's the argument, too, that like the that because there are less black travel writers, they're going to be less. There's le- like that is like a market that is just like waiting to be more there should be more everything across the board but yeah focus on where you put your money and where you're putting your readership and also like it's not like an act of charity i really believe that writing if you listen if you read writing i think writing is like music you know if it doesn't flow after that first sentence you're not going to keep going like good writing is like a good song and like at the very at its very peak you know i think that writing it's a mixture of like it should be immersive you should feel like you're there you know, and it should also just sort of like impact, tell a story, it should be like a song. And yeah. that needs to be focused on more than like, you know, just having like beach blonde on the beach traveling and like writing some dumb blog post about the five. <laughs> you know, you know so. a, a good writer is a good writer is a good yeah. writer. It doesn't matter what ethnicity or racial group or gender mm. you're from. It's it just good writing. Um, what's next for you? I, I know you're working on a couple stories and stuff like that. Tell us what we should look forward to from you. So I'm finishing up my story in, which is one of my favorite ones, about this trip I did with REI in Andean, in Peru. It's They have a partnership with the Andean Lodges. And basically what it is, is it was like a track, which by the way, I'm like doing all this adventure writing. I think I'm doing, it's working well because I don't, there's so much sexism in the outdoorsy writing. And like also extremely whitewashed industry, but it's like, you know, if you like, everyone's hanging out from a tent on the side of the, on the side of a mountain and like, you know, everyone's like not wearing lipstick and eating gorp. 
And like, I was enjoying cigars and um, Pisco Sours while I was in Peru and I survived the hike, so you can too. But it was like my first serious <laughs> track. And talk about places that give back to the community. Like basically, you, do, are you guys familiar with what Rainbow Mountain is in Peru? And now I think everyone, all the listeners should be as well. Like that striped yeah. mountain that literally looks like a sand bottle. Yep. Decades ago, years, not even that long ago, I believe it was almost the 90s, 80s, Canada and one false misstep, rare misstep globally was going to mine that mountain. And that mountain is like, is like the most religious area in like the northern, in the, in the central Andes. So they partnered with the tourism bureau. Here's tourism doing a good thing. They're like, how the hell are we going to save this? They're like, we have to let the world know. They partnered with Etihad, which is like, you know, they, the UAE wasn't even flying to Rainbow Mountain, but they ran an ad that says, do you know where this is? If you do, we can fly you there. So it went viral. What's Rainbow Mountain? Canada knew it was such bad PR. They didn't mind it anymore. Then it's like they have all these communities up there. It's pretty much communism, about 15,000 feet. Right. Which, you know, as a Bernie Sanders fan, I'm 100% here for. But like you go up, you spend money on the trip. They've like built a, kin- a kindergarten. They have like a women's clinic. They have a school. Best trip of my life. I'm writing that. I went slept in the highest lodges in the world. So I'm getting that out. Um, pretty much trying to do a lot of stories about trips I've done that because of the pandemic and because of the, of the political unrest and Black Lives Matter movement, like I've been writing more, I've been writing more that's reacting to current events. So my goal is to like, you know, I'm not going to wait until the pandemic is over to write about some of these amazing trips because I don't know about everyone else, but I've gotten so sick about writing, about reading about the coronavirus and like, I want an escape. Uh And for me, that's what travel ultimately is. Maybe we'll go to Alaska. Yes, yes, Alaska. <laughs> I'm going to Colorado in a couple of weeks. I'm going to try mountain biking there. And I might might be going to the Caribbean this fall, but, you know, it's much more fluid. I mean, I used to travel all the time, and now it's probably good that I've had to slow down. But just like you guys, just like everyone else, I'm really trying to take it week by week in terms of flights, et cetera. Yeah, if you get a chance, we actually interviewed a guy named Kevin Winning. He uh, does bicycle tours around the world. Oh, he's on, cool. He's on, he's on one of our podcasts and he's Colorado based. I believe he, he, I believe he's up in Fort Collins, which is about an hour North of Denver, but uh, you're also oh, talking nice. to a kid who went to high school in Colorado. So. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I, gra- I, I graduated from Air Force, the uh, Air Academy high school, which is on the grounds of the Air Force Academy. All right, Catherine, <laughs> tell us where we can find your stuff, your own website. Time to promote yourself. Go. <laughs> cool. Okay. So you could follow me on Instagram at Catherine Parker Magyar. And then my website is www.parkmagyar.com. No, no hyphen in either of those because that's illegal. So. Uh, okay. No hyphens. You heard it first. And we will also be posting that on our website so they'll be able to hunt you down. Anyway, Catherine, I, I know I speak for Dave when I say this. This has been such a wonderful adventure. I feel like I've traveled the world with you. And I damn sure want you back on this show. Not only to talk about your, uh, what did I call it? The 50 books or 50, 50 books. Yeah, 50 books for 50 states mm-hmm. idea. But I got other things I want to talk to you about. You have just spurred up a whole bunch of uh, excitement in me that I yeah. need to kind of get off my chest. Thank you guys. This was so much fun. I definitely want to come back on like cool. tomorrow, whenever. <laughs> okay. I'm quarantined. I've got no life. <laughs> we can make that happen. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been speaking to Catherine Parker Magyar, and we will have all her information posted on our website as well. 